Welcome to The Essential Sam Harris. This is Making Sense of Consciousness. The goal of this series is to organize, compile, and juxtapose conversations hosted by Sam Harris into specific areas of interest. This is an ongoing effort to construct a coherent overview of Sam's perspectives and arguments, the various explorations and approaches to the topic, the relevant agreements and disagreements, and the pushbacks and evolving thoughts which his guests have advanced. The purpose of these compilations is not to provide a complete picture of any issue, but to entice you to go deeper into these subjects. Along the way, we'll point you to the full episodes with each featured guest, and at the conclusion, we'll offer some reading, listening, and watching suggestions, which range from fun and light to densely academic. One note to keep in mind for this series. Sam has long argued for a unity of knowledge where the barriers between fields of study are viewed as largely unhelpful artifacts of unnecessarily partitioned thought. The pursuit of wisdom and reason in one area of study naturally bleeds into, and greatly affects, others. You'll hear plenty of crossover into other topics as these dives into the archives unfold. And your thinking about a particular topic may shift as you realize its contingent relationships with others. In this topic, you'll hear the natural overlap with theories of identity and the self, free will, mind and the brain, artificial intelligence, belief and unbelief, meditation and spirituality, and more. So, get ready. Let's make sense of consciousness. As you just heard, the topic of consciousness overlaps with just about everything, because depending on your description of it, it's the medium through which everything is experienced. Or is it more accurate to refer to it as the experience of anything? A great deal of the effort to wrap one's head around the topic of consciousness is the struggle to define it at all. Most thinkers in this space concede that we don't yet have a good definition or explanation for consciousness. Though, as you'll also hear, there are some who think we're simply asking the wrong questions, or demanding too much of an explanation of it. But to many, there does seem to be something special about the issue of consciousness. This particular issue and sticking point of the special case of consciousness is the issue which drove Sam back into academia to pursue his PhD in neuroscience. In fact, he was directly inspired to do so by the guest in the first clip. So let's see if we can get a hold of that intuition that consciousness is a special and perhaps perpetually intractable case. In this episode, you're going to encounter a bevy of thought experiments and whimsical hypotheticals that attempt to get at this thing we call consciousness. In many ways, all of this can sound a bit odd. If consciousness is simply the manifest truth of subjective experience itself, then consciousness is simultaneously the most obviously and undeniably present and graspable thing there could be, yet it remains perhaps the most elusive and mysterious thing to make any sense of. How could this be? One thing that you'll need to keep in mind is Sam's firm philosophical position on consciousness. He argues that consciousness is the only thing which can't be an illusion. In philosophical jargon, this idea is sometimes called solipsism. What he means by this is that one could be hopelessly confused about what they are perceiving as reality. 
You could even be unknowingly in a simulated universe generated by a supercomputer in another dimension. All of your memories could be false and simply injected into your brain a split second ago by an alien who was just playing an elaborate trick on you. You could be in a dream. But as long as there is a perception at all, that presence of perception is what Sam means by consciousness. And that feeling is undeniable from the inside of it. In a very literal sense, it is a self-evident truth, the only self-evident truth in Sam's view. In this meaning, a contention that one only seems to be conscious, or that one is being tricked into thinking he is conscious, is total nonsense, because the seeming is the consciousness. This sets up a kind of dual picture where we have consciousness and its contents. And even if the contents are utterly confused or unreal in some sense, the consciousness remains as the thing which experiences them. Perhaps consciousness is something like a mirror reflecting passing lights and colors. The images that appear on the mirror may be illusions or tricks of shadows which convince you of a world. But the mirror itself is undeniable. If you remove the mirror, there is nothing to capture or experience the contents of that world. But already there is something quite strange to ask. Why does there need to be a mirror at all? Isn't it perfectly feasible to have a universe that follows the laws of physics and goes along doing its thing, purely in the dark, without any inner subjective experience embedded within it, without any feeling at all? That universe is at least imaginable to us, and it feels possible and eerily easy to conceive. But before we dive in too quickly, we still need to try to point to exactly what we mean by consciousness. Sometimes conversations on consciousness can feel like an endless string of analogies and stories trying to restart a strange deliberation on the correct path. Is consciousness like a radio receiving signals? Is it like a stage play or theater? Or is it, as Plato once famously imagined, like shadows on a cave wall? You can pay attention to what it's like to hear the sound of my voice right now and notice your awareness. And presumably, there is a level of information processing happening in your brain, which somehow gives rise to the feeling that it is something that it is like for you to be listening to me right now. But your brain is also presumably doing a lot of other things at the moment, which are arguably much more important, like regulating the function of your kidneys, or monitoring your heartbeat, or breathing. And there doesn't seem to be a subjective feeling associated with those clusters of brain activity, does there? You could perhaps direct your attention to them and maybe grasp some vague awareness. But before I pointed it out and you turned your inner spotlight towards them, the activity was happening in the darkness without a subjective conscious quality. So why do some activities give rise to this feeling while others don't? Let's try out our first hypothetical to further get at what might be meant by consciousness. This is a conception which very much aligns with Sam's usage of the term throughout these conversations, so it will be very useful to onboard now. Thomas Nagel brought us a simple question in an essay he wrote in 1974. The essay asks the question in its title, What is it like to be a bat? One of the prominent voices in the field of consciousness is the American philosopher Daniel Dennett. Dennett likes to refer to these kinds of hypotheticals and mind explorations not as thought experiments, but as intuition pumps. 
This is itself a useful analogy where you can imagine being walked through a hypothetical not to perform any kind of experiment in any scientific sense, but to have the hypothetical sort of inflate an intuition you might have about something. Perhaps the intuition gets pumped up to the point where it crowds out all others and proclaims itself to be an undeniable truth. Dennett happens to disagree with Sam's views on consciousness, and Thomas Nagel's as well. You'll hear some of Dennett's objections raised by Sam and his guests throughout these conversations. Sam had Dennett on the show, but that entanglement is included in the Free Will compilation. And as you'll surely gather, that conversation includes intimately related disagreements. But let's spend some time with Nagel's question and see what kind of intuitions it pumps up within us. This intuition pump is best run on oneself, so I'll start by putting myself to the test. So, what is it like to be a bat? Well, it's quite different. It's dark. I have this sonar echolocation thing. Is this a little like human vision? Or is it more like hearing? Or even touch? I must be building some kind of mental map of my physical environment as I navigate it. The echolocation seems to give me a good idea of how to move about the radial area around me to about 10 feet. I feel something. It's a sort of urge or desire, like hunger. And I experience something like sweetness and satisfaction when I taste the juicy mosquito I just ate. I don't like the feeling of bumping into the wall too hard. That must be something like pain. I really am not sure how much of a concept of the future or past I can imagine. Do I have a mind's eye where I can picture things which are not present? Do I have a memory? Whatever this constellation of experiences is, this must all add up to a kind of batness. It feels like whatever this is, that there is something that it is like to be a bat. Now let's pump this intuition fully by substituting alternatives for the bat in Nagel's initial question. What is it like to be a dog? Or a ladybug? What about a grizzly bear? All of these substitutions seem to still result in having some kind of experience in the inner world. But what happens to our intuition when we swap out the bat with something like a tree branch? What is it like to be a twig? Or a boulder? Or the Eiffel Tower? What about a submarine, which also has something like sonar? Is it like anything to be them? This was the point of Nagel's question. If imagining what it's like to be something ends up obliterating the notion of experience at all, is the thing conscious? We may not know exactly what it's really like to be a bat, but we get the sense that there is something that it must be like to be one. We tend not to have that same intuition about the boulder. Perhaps this is because there doesn't appear to be anything like a central nervous system, or a place where all the sensory data is orchestrated or stored. A simple old-fashioned mercury thermometer does interact and respond to its environment. The mercury conducts heat from its target and expands and climbs the tube in response. But is it like anything to do this? Is the thermometer having an inner experience? Or is this just a non-sentient interaction of physics that lacks any sense of an inner experience or the feeling of an experiencer somehow within the thermometer? Our intuition suggests that this is the truer picture, and we tend not to grant consciousness to thermometers in the way that we might to bats, bears, and other people. But wait, something funny is happening here. If I look closer and closer at my physical system, 
which I've already established must be generating consciousness as proven by my subjective inner experience at this moment, am I not just made up of incredibly small thermometers? If I look at a single atom in my brain, is it not just responding to its environment and being moved around by the laws of physics in much the same way the thermometer is? How is any amount of this seemingly non-sentient activity and in any imaginable physical configuration generating something like a unified, collective, subjective, consistent experience that we are calling consciousness? This leads us to our first guest, who coined this particular question, the hard problem. The guest is the philosopher David Chalmers. By distinguishing this problem as the hard one, Chalmers implies that there must be easy problems to consider in this space. Don't let the word easy confuse you here. He's not suggesting that we know much about those either, but by easy problems, he's talking about the questions of how to correlate conscious states with neurophysiological activity, such as noticing which areas of the brain light up when the subject reports experiencing a certain sound, memory, or emotion. Chalmers contends that all of that work may provide insight into how the machinery of the brain operates, and it might give us fuller scientific descriptions for things like vision, hearing, taste, or even memory and dreaming. But all the correlations we could ever hope to find in those investigations won't, and perhaps can't, ever address why any physical activity should, and apparently does, give rise to inner subjective experience. That's the hard problem. So let's start with Sam and David Chalmers' exchange on this topic from episode 34, which is called The Light of the Mind. We're going to jump right in with Sam asking Chalmers what he thinks of Nagel's famous question about what it's like to be a bat. There was another very influential articulation of this problem, which I would assume influenced you as well, which was Thomas Nagel's essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? The formulation he gave there is, if it's like something to be a creature or a system processing information, whatever it's like, even if it's something we can't understand, the fact that it is like something, the fact that there's an internal, subjective, qualitative character to the thing, the fact that if you could switch places with it, it wouldn't be synonymous with the lights going out, that fact, the fact that it's like something to be a bat, is the fact of consciousness in the case of a bat or in any other system. I know people who are not sympathetic with that formulation just think it's a kind of tautology or it's, it's just a, a question-begging formulation of it. But as a rudimentary statement of what consciousness is, I've always found that to be an attractive one. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I find it's a, uh, that's about as good a definition as we're going to get for consciousness. The idea is roughly that a system is conscious if there's something it's like to be that system. So there's something it's like to be me. Right now, I'm conscious. There's nothing it's like, presumably, to be this glass of water on my desk. If there's nothing it's like to be that glass of water on my desk, then it's not conscious. Likewise, some of my mental states, you know, my seeing uh, the green leaves right now, there's something it's like for me to see the green leaves. So that's a conscious state for me. But maybe there's some unconscious language processing of syntax going on in my head that doesn't feel like anything to me or some motor processes in the cerebellum. And those might be states of me, but they're not conscious states of me because there's 
nothing it's like for me to undergo those states. So I find this is a definition that's very vivid and useful for me. That said, it's just a bunch of words like anything. And for some people, this, so for some people, this bunch of words, I think, is very useful in activating the idea of consciousness from the subjective point of view. Other people hear something different in that set of words, like you say, what is it like? You're saying, what is it similar to? Well, it's like it's kind of similar to my brother, but it's different as well. You know, for those people, that set of words doesn't work. So what I've found over the years is it, it, this phrase of, of Nagel's is incredibly useful for at least some people in getting them on to the problem, although it doesn't work for everybody. What do you make of the fact that so many scientists and philosophers find this the, the hardness of the hard problem? And I think I should probably get you to state why it's so hard or why, why you, you have distinguish the hard from the easy problems of consciousness. But what, what do you make of the fact that people find it difficult to concede that there's, that there's a problem here? Because it's, I mean, this is just a, a common phenomenon. I mean, you, you, there are people like Dan Dennett and, and the Churchlands and other philosophers who just kind of ram their way past the mystery here and declare that it's a pseudo-mystery. Let's state what the hard problem is and Perhaps you can say why it's, why it's not immediately compelling to everyone that it's, in fact, hard. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a huge amount of disagreement in this area. I don't know what your sense is. My sense is that most people, at least, have got a reasonable appreciation of the fact that there's a big problem here. Of course, what you do um, after that is very different in different cases. Some people think, well, it's only an initial problem, and we can... We ought to kind of see it as an illusion and get past it. But yeah, this, to state the problem, I find it useful to first start by distinguishing the easy problems, which are problems basically about the performance of functions from the hard problem, which is about experience. So the easy problems are, you know, how is it, for example, we discriminate information in our environment and respond appropriately? How does the brain integrate information from different sources and bring it together to make a judgment and control behavior. How indeed do we voluntarily control behavior to respond in a controlled way to our environment? How does our brain monitor its own states? These are all big mysteries. And actually, neuroscience has not gotten all that far on some of these, uh, of these problems. They're, um, they're all quite difficult. But in those cases, we have a pretty clear sense of what the research program is and what it would take to explain them. It's basically a matter of finding some mechanism in the brain that, for example, is responsible for discriminating the information and controlling the behavior. And although it's, uh, it's pretty hard work, finding the mechanism, we're on a path to doing that. So a neural mechanism for discriminating information, a computational mechanism for the brain to monitor its own states, um, and, and so on. So for the easy problems, they at least fall within the standard methods of the brain and cognitive sciences. We're basically, we're trying to explain some kind of function and we just find a mechanism. The hard problem, what makes the hard problem of experience hard is it doesn't really seem to be a problem about behavior or about functions. You could explain, you could in principle imagine explaining all of my behavioral responses to a given stimulus and how my brain discriminates and integrates and monitors itself and controls. You can explain all that with, say, a neural mechanism, and you might not have touched the central question, which is why does it feel like something from the first person 
point of view. That just doesn't seem to be a problem about explaining behaviors and explaining functions. And as a result, the usual methods that work for us so well in the brain and cognitive sciences, finding a mechanism that does the job, just doesn't obviously apply here. We're going to get correlations. We're certainly finding correlations between processes in the brain and bits of consciousness, an area of the brain that might light up when you see red or when you, uh, when you feel pain. But nothing there seems yet to be giving us an explanation. Why does all that processing feel like something from the inside? Why, does it, why doesn't it go on just in the dark, as if we were giant robots um, or zombies without any subjective experience? So that's the hard problem. And I'm inclined to think that most, you know, most people at least recognize there is at least the appearance of a big problem here. From that point, people react in different ways. Someone like Dan Dennett says, ah, it's all an illusion or a confusion and one that we need to, uh, to get past. And I mean, I respect that line. I think it's a hard enough problem that we need to be exploring every, uh, every avenue here. And one avenue that's very much worth exploring is the, the view that it's an illusion. But there is something kind of faintly unbelievable about the whole idea that the data of consciousness here are an illusion. To me, they're the most real thing in the, uh, the universe, you know, the feeling of pain, the experience of vision or of thinking. So it's a very, um, it's a very hard line to take the line that Dan Dennett takes. He taught, he wrote a book, Consciousness Explained, back in the early 90s, where he tried to take that line. It was very, it was a very good and very influential book. But I think most people have, have found that at the end of the day, it just doesn't seem to do justice to the phenomenon. You've touched on it in passing here, but remind us of the, the zombie argument that I don't know if that originates with you. I, it, it's not something that uh, I noticed before I heard you making it, but the zombie argument really is the thought experiment that describes epiphenomenalism. Introduce the concept of a zombie, and I, then I have a question about that. So yeah, the idea of zombies actually, I mean, it'd been out there for a, for a while in philosophy uh, before me, not to mention out there in the, uh, in the popular culture, but uh, the zombies which play a role in philosophy are a bit different from the zombies that play a role in the movies or in the Haitian voodoo culture. Um, you know, the ones in the movies are all supposed to be all the different kinds of zombies are missing something. The zombies in the movie are lacking uh, somehow life. They're, they're dead, but reanimated. The zombies in the, in the voodoo tradition are lacking some kind of free will. Well, the zombies that play a role in philosophy are lacking consciousness. And this is just a thought experiment, but the conceit is that we can at least imagine a being, at the very least behaviorally identical to a normal human being, but without any consciousness on the inside at all, just acting and walking and talking in a perfectly human-like way without any consciousness. The extreme version of this thought experiment says we can at least imagine a being physically identical to a normal human being, but without any subjective consciousness. So I talk about my zombie twin, you know, a hypothetical being in the universe next door who's physically identical to me, he's holding a conversation like this with a zombie analog of you right now, um, saying all the, uh, all the same stuff and responding, but without any consciousness. Now, no one thinks anything like this exists in our universe, but the idea at least seems imaginable or conceivable. There doesn't seem to be any contradiction in the idea. And the very fact that you can kind of make sense of the idea immediately raises some questions like, why? aren't we zombies? There's a contrast here. 
Um, zombies could have existed. Evolution could have produced zombies. Why didn't evolution produce zombies? It produced conscious beings. It looks like for anything behavioral you could point to, it starts to look as if a zombie could do all the same things without consciousness. So if there was some function we could point to and say that's what you need consciousness for and you could not in principle do that without consciousness, then we might have a function for consciousness. But right now it seems, I mean, actually this corresponds to the science for anything that we actually do, uh, perception, learning, memory, language, and so on. It sure looks like a whole, a whole lot of it can be performed even in the actual world unconsciously. So the whole problem of what consciousness is doing is just thrown into harsh relief by that thought experiment. Yeah, well, yeah, as you say, that most of what our minds are accomplishing is unconscious, or at least it seems to be unconscious from the point of view of the two of us who are having this conversation. So the fact that I can follow the rules of English grammar, insofar as I manage to do that, that is all being implemented in a way that is unconscious. And when I make an error, I, I as the conscious witness of my inner life, I'm just surprised at the appearance of the error, and I could be surprised for all, on all those occasions where I make no errors, and I get to the end of a sentence in something like grammatically correct form, I could be sensitive to the, the fundamental mysteriousness of that, which is to say that I'm following rules that I, am, I have no conscious access to in the moment. And everything is like that. The fact that I perceive the, my visual field, the fact that I hear your voice, the fact that I effortlessly and actually helplessly decode meaning from your words because I am an English speaker and, and you're speaking in English, but if you were speaking in Chinese, it would just be noise. And I mean, this is, this is all unconsciously mediated. And so, the, again, it is a mystery why there should be something that it's like to be associated with any part of this process because so much of the process can take place in the dark. You heard David Chalmers mention the idea of a philosophical zombie and explain it a bit. But it's worth spending a little more time to fully explore this idea in order to set up our next guest, who actually finds the whole notion of the zombie to be an unhelpful distraction. So let's build a zombie. Imagine having a cabinet full of raw materials to build a human. Picture a mess of atoms or quarks or however small you'd like to imagine our building blocks. Picture all of that stuff in well-labeled pull-out drawers at our bizarre assembly station. At this stage, one would be hard-pressed to say the stuff in any of the drawers was conscious using Nagel's test. It appears to be just like our initial questions of asking what it's like to be a boulder, perhaps even worse. What is it like to be a single electron? But now let's start putting all the pieces together. And let's say we set out to build a precise copy of you. So we start putting all the atoms together, forming the correct bonds to make carbon and nucleic acids, proteins, lipids, blood plasma, and everything else. And we construct the entire physical system that is you, forming all the organs and bones and, of course, the brain. Until at last, we complete our perfect copy. This copy of you would presumably speak just like you and announce itself to be you. If all memory and knowledge is ultimately embedded in a physical system, then we must have also copied all of that stuff over during our building process. This clone would have all of your memories, your personality, your desires, your fears, and everything else. 
and of course, we would assume the thing is conscious. It would certainly be behaving as if it were. But remember that our intuition was telling us that just a few minutes ago, when all the parts were unassembled in the cabinet, there was no consciousness there. So what happened here? There seems to be only a few possibilities. One possibility is that the copy slowly gained consciousness as we assembled the system. Consciousness began to emerge when the parts were in a sufficiently complex arrangement and in a special configuration, and the consciousness began at a very low, dull level. Consciousness fully reached its current depth and richness when we completed the building of the whole body, and likely needed much of the brain to be built to really ramp up its subjective experience. Imagine this as something like a consciousness dimmer switch being turned up as we built. Another possibility tells us that consciousness was completely absent while we were building the thing, until we added one specific piece which completed some yet unknown special configuration of information integration, and then consciousness flicked on into existence, something more like an on-off switch, or like the previous analogy of a radio. Perhaps there is something like a consciousness field, which is only able to be tapped into and channeled if the receiver is built just right, just like a radio antenna picking up the already present radio signals in the air. They were always there, but were invisible and mute until we completed our radio receiver. This idea is also intuitive to some people, because consciousness feels like a binary state where you either have it or you don't. Or to recall our earlier analogy, it's either somewhere on the mirror or it's not. But there is another possibility about our clone that's also strangely intuitive, or at least conceivable, and that is that consciousness never happens at all in this process. Recall that we were quite certain that the atoms and quarks in the drawers had no consciousness when we started, and we definitely never ladled any magical consciousness stuff into the copy at any point while we were building it. We don't even know if such a metaphysical thing exists. And if it does, we certainly don't have physical access to it. So perhaps the copy of you behaves just like you and announces its consciousness, but the lights are not actually on inside. It's not really having any inner subjective experience. This is the idea of the philosophical zombie. Now, if you're getting a bit frustrated by this picture and professing that a philosophical zombie could not possibly exist even if we could conceive of the thing, and consciousness must be emerging somehow within it, well, you're in good company. Very few serious thinkers in the field would defend the idea that a philosophical zombie is possible at all. But there is another question that the zombie helps us formulate, perhaps a good scientific one. If philosophical zombies can't be built, where did the consciousness stuff come from in the copy of you? Was it actually somehow there in the matter in the drawers before we started to build the zombie? Does that imply that everything has a tiny bit of consciousness or a mental property associated with it? Does the right physical configuration somehow unlock it and allow it to flow? And that gives rise to a unified feeling of consciousness? This notion points to a theory called panpsychism that we'll get to a bit later. Or is consciousness simply a kind of law of nature? Consciousness just emerges given the right flow of information within a system? As strange as it sounds, there is simply a principle of physics which states that a certain kind of information processing just results in the system having an inner experience of being. We may get better at describing the kinds of systems that inevitably result in consciousness in the same way that we can describe systems that unfailingly result in all kinds of emergent phenomena, like the kinds of descriptions of the behaviors of atmospheric conditions which inevitably result in hurricanes. 
But really, that's the whole story and the best explanation we will ever and could ever get about consciousness. But that last bit of strangeness is deeply unsatisfying to some people. And Sam is amongst those thinkers who contend that this kind of explanation will always be unsatisfactory and be of a fundamentally different nature than other scientific explanations of emergent properties. There is just something about the intuition which the zombie story inflates that protests against these types of correlative and reductionist explanations. The gap between even increasingly detailed descriptions of complex physical processes and something like a rich inner subjective experience of seeing the color red, or feeling love, or the taste of vanilla, or the awareness of hope, is just too wide and of a nature that it could never be closed. In episode 96, Sam tangled with a thinker who disagrees with this declaration of an unbridgeable gap and is not shy about it. This is Thomas Metzinger, professor and director of the Theoretical Philosophy Group on Neuroethics and Neurophilosophy at Johannes Gutenberg University. Here, Metzinger expresses his frustrations with the idea of a zombie and laments how it can sidetrack what he considers a serious and confident effort to arrive at a true science of consciousness. You're not a fan anymore, if you ever were, of the framing by David Chalmers of the hard problem of consciousness? No, that's so boring. I mean, that's last century. I mean, you know, we all respect Dave, and we know he's very smart and has got a very fast mind. There's no debate about that. But conceivability arguments are just um, very, very weak. If you have an ill-defined folk psychological umbrella term like consciousness, then you can pull off all kinds of scenarios and uh, zombie thought experiments. It doesn't really, it helped to clarify some issues in the mid-90s. Um, but the consciousness community has listened to this and just moved on. I mean, uh, nobody of the serious researchers in the field thinks about this anymore, but it has taken on like a folkloristic life of its own. There's a lot of people talk about the hard problem who wouldn't be able uh, to state what it consists in uh, now. Well, well, maybe we should just state it. Any explanation we get about consciousness, I mean, let's just say we you know, open the, the back of the book of nature and we get the right answer about consciousness, and it turns out that you need exactly, you know, 10,000 information processing units of a certain character. They have to be wired in a certain way. They have to be firing at a certain hertz. And just lo and behold, that is what gives you consciousness. And, and if you change any of those parameters, well, then the lights go out. Let's say we knew that to be true. It still wouldn't explain the emergence of consciousness in a way that is intuitively graspable. It still would seem like a miracle. And, and that's not the way most or really any satisfying scientific explanation works out. When I give you an explanation for any higher level property, you know, the fluidity of water or the brittleness of glass in terms of its micro constituents, well, then that explanation actually does run through and conserves your intuitions about how things function at a lower level so as to appear as they do on a higher level. So the conceivability issue for me with the hard problem isn't so much a statement about what is true. It's not that 
I doubt that consciousness can be an emergent property of information processing because it's so difficult to conceive or impossible to conceive how that works. But it is just a statement about the seeming limits of explanation. It sounds to me that whatever you put in the space provided will still sound like the restatement of a miracle, which is really analogous to how, to take an analogy to cosmology, the idea that everything, including the laws of nature, emerged out of nothing, right? Like just things exploded into being. Now, that may in fact be true, but I would argue, or at least it seems to me, that it's inconceivable or uninterpretable or it's not understandable. It's, 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 it's the statement of a miracle. And so that's, that's really my, my fondness for the hard problem is, is a matter of epistemology more than it is ontology. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. You've now mentioned so many uh, important points that I don't really know where to start. So maybe we should just start say technically the hard problem is that phenomenal properties only nomologically supervene on functional properties, but not logically. That is the conscious properties of sweetness or redness or whatever the bat perceives is determined by information flow in its brain in this world under the laws of nature holding in this world. But there are other worlds where we can imagine that the bat is a zombie with exactly that information flow in its brain, that there could always be a functional isomorph to Sam, right? Some, some entity that has the same uh, functions on a certain level of granularity but which instantiates no phenomenal properties. Nomologically means under the laws of nature holding in our universe. Now, there could be other universes, logically possible worlds, in which these laws of nature do not hold. So the idea is that consciousness is determined from below, from the brain, may only hold in this world with these laws of nature, but it's not conceptually something that may hold across all possible worlds. That's the idea that that is the mystery that you are trying to isolate, that the mystery consists in the fact that we can always imagine that Sam Harris is a zombie, that he would talk, he would even talk about his emotions and his color experiences, um, but he would not have any inner perspective. That's the idea. That's the mystery. Well, well, I would strike a slightly different emphasis here, Thomas, this idea that we can conceive of a zombie. Now, the fact that we can imagine such a thing does not even slightly suggest that such a thing is possible. It just may be that in order to get something that functions like a human being and seems like a human being from the outside, consciousness is always going to be necessary or will always come along for the ride. So I'm not arguing from the side of it's conceivable that there could be a zombie Sam, and therefore there's a hard problem of consciousness. It's more that whatever I imagine the explanation to be, the idea that, you know, the first the lights are not on, and then they come on by virtue of some complexity in the system, some... No, complexity doesn't explain anything. Complexity is not good. But then you can keep change. I mean, you keep changing the the, the noun, whether it's information integration or mm-hmm. or, or you know, sure, or, you sure, know, sure. So whatever the answer is, and, and there have been various answers proffered in in recent decades, it still sounds like just a brute fact 
that doesn't actually explain anything. And that's and that again, it's it's not the way other scientific explanations, even with respect to life, function. Well, the last point may not be right. So, but what you're actually getting at is what is the value of intuitions? Uh, can we demand of a good theory of consciousness that it gives us an intuitive feeling, this is right, now I've understood it? We would never ask this of a theoretical physicist. If they tell us something about 11 dimensions and string theory, nobody would say, this is completely counterintuitive. This has nothing to do with my life world. This is just brute facts they're stipulating. We just trust these people. They know math. They have theories with high predictive power. They're very smart. And we don't demand this intuition. I would say we actually do. I mean, this has been famously what has been so unsatisfying about quantum mechanics, which is that no one, you're not, yes. not even Richard Feynman can pretend to understand it. All the physicists can say is that the math works out and it has immense predictive value, but it's still... That is enough. Yeah, well, it, 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 it could be enough. It could be enough. And, and I, you know, I take your point about the limit of intuition in that, you know, our intuitions were not designed by evolution for us to grasp reality as it is. Our intuitions were were designed to, you know, avoid getting hit over the head by another ape or to mate with his sister. Our intuitions are very crude. But again, we use certain intuitions that we have, you know, whether mathematical or otherwise, to leverage ourselves into areas where our intuitions, our common sense intuitions, and certainly our, our folk psychological intuitions, are not good. So I, I can certainly follow you there, but it still just seems to be the case that consciousness provides some kind of extra impediments here. So take something like platform independence. So like, you know, if we assume that there's nothing magical about having a computer made of meat and consciousness is as mind is, as intelligence is, clearly platform independent, and therefore we could, in, in principle, build conscious computers that were non-biological, how would we move, in your view, from having characterized the neural correlate of consciousness in people into being confident that the computers that seem to emulate that functionally and, and informationally are themselves conscious? What I'm imagining the future of AI will very likely look like is that we will build computers that pass the Turing test and that seem conscious to us. But unless we fully understand how consciousness emerges, we won't know whether they're conscious. They might say they're conscious. They might seem even more conscious than we are. And I, I know I've been talking a lot. I just I want to kind of give you the full landscape of my prejudice and confusion so that you can run over it. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's all very interesting. And of course, I fully understand what you mean. But we have to, you know, have to think about intuitions um, a little bit. They have a long evolutionary history. If I have an intuition that an explanation is satisfactory, it is, it is itself a kind of conscious experience. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. There's not only a phenomenology of redness. There's also a phenomenology of, I just know this, but I don't know for what reason I know it or where the knowledge comes from. And in many cases, intuitive knowledge is fantastic. It comes from, con condenses knowledge from the world of our ancestors 
Just think about social cognition. You know, if you have to set this intuition, this guy is dangerous or she is a good person. Um, this is a way of computing itself. It doesn't generate sentences in your head, but intuitions. Now, the question is, could we ever be intuitively satisfied? I think we cannot because our theory of consciousness will also tell us what a self is and what a first-person perspective is. And that is something we will not be able to ever grasp intuitively what's coming out of there. But to come back to your question, you know that for a number of years I've strictly argued against even risking phenomenal states in machines. We should in no way uh, try attempt to create conscious machines or even get close because we might cause a cascade you know, uh, of uh, suffering, we might just inc increase the overall amount of suffering in the universe. And just because of this reason, it's very important to have a theory of consciousness. We must have one. So what would we do if we had the global neurocorrelate of consciousness? That was your question. The hardware doesn't matter. We need to know the flow of information. What is uh, the computation that is carried out? Then we have to describe this on the right level of conceptual granularity, meaning what corresponds to my experience of redness? What in that information flow is minimally sufficient for my intuition that we will never understand consciousness? What is minimally sufficient for my sense of selfhood and so forth? And if we have that mapping from our own phenomenology to fine-grained computational descriptions, then we can see, is this instantiated in a machine or not? The problem, rather, is that machines could have forms of suffering or forms of selfhood that we cannot even grasp because they are so alien and so different from our biological form of uh, you know, conscious experience or emotion. Maybe they would develop it and we wouldn't see it. Maybe it is already there and we wouldn't discover it. So there's certainly a great problem in, you know, across spaces, spaces of consciousness, conscious experience. Just as with the bat, you're never going to understand what does it feel like to be the bat. That is something we will never know how it feels to instantiate these data formats. And that may be, may be happening with your machines as well, right? It sounds like Sam and Metzinger clashed on many points there. But if you paid close attention, you could also hear plenty of agreement and mutual concern about the issues of consciousness, particularly the necessity to have a good theory of consciousness in hand in order to assess and navigate the world of artificial intelligence. Are those machines philosophical zombies or not? The ethical implications are obvious and profound. If you want more of that particular area of contemplation, be sure to listen to the episode in this series on artificial intelligence. But to stick with our investigation of consciousness, let's focus on the tension between Sam and Metzinger. They both seem rather clear-eyed about their differences, and it seems to be based on the nature of our intuitions. Here is the central question. If we have a theory of the world in hand that is making excellent scientific predictions, meaning it just keeps getting things right about the future physical states of systems when we measure them. But the theory bucks against our evolved intuitions of how the world should work. 
what do we do about that imbalance? Do those strong intuitions override or throw doubt on the well-performing scientific theory itself? Sam alluded to the counterintuitive findings of quantum mechanics, where objects appear to impossibly travel back in time and change their past states based on human measurement at a later moment, and where entangled objects appear to communicate instantaneously across vast distances. Even Einstein himself noticed the intuition mismatch with the scientific findings when he famously referred to this as spooky action at a distance. But quantum theory performs uncannily well at making accurate scientific predictions. It just feels so counterintuitive to how our normal, everyday physical world seems to operate at a macro scale. You've heard the analogy to a theory of life mentioned already. This next clip is going to draw out that same analogy and lean on it as a possibly optimistic lesson and a reminder that humans once considered a particular problem so mysterious that our best explanations seem to be the introduction of a metaphysical, spirit-like force. This was known as the theory of vitalism, which insisted on a life force, or an Elan Vital, as it was coined by Henri Bergson in 1907. The Elan Vital was the animating metaphysical stuff that somehow permeated physical systems which were alive and was absent in dead systems. This theory was rejected once we had better scientific theories of biomechanics and emergentism. But what made those theories better? Is it because those newer theories didn't just make successful physical predictions, but that they also somehow felt satisfying to our intuitions about how life should be explained? Sam expresses concern that we won't ever arrive at a theory like this in the case of consciousness. His next guest may concur, but also wonders if we have to set that fear aside and charge ahead with what Chalmers attempted to distinguish as the easy problems. And he also suggests that perhaps progress on the easy problems may soften the hard problem and maybe deflate our protesting intuitions. But let's first introduce another story to really zero in on that persistent and dogged intuition as our target. This one comes from the American philosopher Frank Jackson, who laid out what is known as the knowledge argument in 1982. It's a story called Mary's Room, and it goes like this. Mary is a scientist who lives her entire life in a black and white room. Everything in there is only different shades of gray. From this room, she decides to study color. Imagine that she has access to all the world's knowledge of color from this room. She can read all of the books she can get her hands on, research the physics of light and how the waves light up certain regions of the brain. She can interview anyone she wants about their experience of color. She can perform experiments with them and get their reported first-person accounts of what they feel and experience when they encounter, remember, or imagine certain objects. And one day, she is sure that she has exhausted all knowledge about the color red. She has become the most learned person imaginable on this subject, all from this black and white room. Then, for the first time in her life, she opens the door and steps outside the room. She sees a red rose growing in the grass. She gasps and says, Oh. The question Jackson asks is, did she learn something new the moment she saw the rose? Did she get something that was fundamentally unknowable, unlearnable, and unteachable until that moment? That intuition that you might be feeling right now, that she has indeed gotten something new here, namely her personal ineffable inner experience of that red rose, is what is referred to as qualia. 
There have been numerous challenges and edits made to this story, including some clever ones by the aforementioned Dan Denon, who imagines that instead of a red rose at the end of the story, there is a banana, which has been painted blue by someone attempting to play a trick on her. Dennett asks us to consider whether Mary, in that instance, would know she was being tricked, and if so, how? We'll come back to this story of Mary and the black and white room a bit later, but it's useful to have this intuition of qualia, or a phenomenal property of consciousness, in mind for this next conversation. The conversation is with the Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Sussex, Anil Seth, and it comes from episode 113. This episode was a marathon at three hours long, but it's a marathon worth running. Here they are in deep discussion on the limits of intuition and its tension with science. This is from an episode entitled Consciousness and the Self. The hard problem is understanding how and why any solution to the easy problem, any explanation of how the brain does what it does in terms of behavior, perception, and so on, how and why any of this should have anything to do with conscious experiences at all. And it rests on this idea of, of the conceivability of zombies. And this is one reason I don't really like it very much. I mean, the hard problem has its, has its conceptual power over us because it asks us to imagine uh, systems, philosophical zombies, that are completely equivalent in terms of their function and behavior to you or to me or to any or to a conscious bat but that instantiate no phenomenal properties at all. The lights are completely off for these philosophical zombies. And if we can imagine such a system, if we can imagine such a thing, a philosophical zombie, you or me, then it does become this, this enormous challenge. You think, well, then what is it or what could it be about real me, real you, real conscious bat, that gives rise, that requires or entails that there are also these phenomenal properties, that there is something it is like to be you or me or the bat. And it's, it's because Chalmers would argue that such things are conceivable that the hard problem seems like a really huge problem. Now, I, I think this is a little bit of a, I think we've moved on a little bit from these conceivability arguments. Firstly, I just think that they're pretty weak. Um, and the more you know about a system, you know, the more we know about the easy problem, the less convincing it is to imagine a zombie alternative. I, I, you know, think about, um, you know, you're, a, you're, a, you're a kid, you look up at the sky and you see a 747 flying overhead and somebody asks you to imagine a, a 747 flying backwards. Well, you can imagine a 747 flying backwards, but the more you learn about aerodynamics, about engineering, the harder it is to conceive of a 747 flying backwards. You know, you simply can't build one that way. And that's my worry about this kind of conceivability argument, that to me, I, I, I really don't think I can imagine in a serious way the existence of a philosophical zombie. And if I can't imagine a zombie, then the hard problem loses some of its force. That's interesting. I, I don't think it loses all of its force, or at least it doesn't for me. For me, the hard problem has never really rested on the zombie argument, although I know Chalmers did a lot with the zombie argument. I mean, so let's just stipulate that philosophical zombies are impossible. They're at least, you know, what's called in the jargon, nomologically impossible. It's just a fact that we live in a universe where if you built something that could do what I can do, that something would be conscious. So there is no zombie Sam that's possible. And let's just also add what you just 
said that it really, when you get to the details, you're not even conceiving of it being possible. It's not even conceptually possible. You're not thinking it through enough. And if you did, you would notice it break apart. But for me, the hard problem is really that with consciousness, any explanation doesn't seem to promise the same sort of intuitive closure that other scientific explanations do. It's analogous to whatever it is, and we'll get to some of the possible explanations, but it's not like something like life, which is an analogy that you draw and that many scientists have drawn to how we can make a breakthrough here. It used to be that people thought life could never be explained in mechanistic terms. There was a philosophical point of view called vitalism here, which suggested that you needed some animating spirit, some Elan Vital in the wheelworks to make sense of the fact that living systems are different from dead ones, the fact that they can reproduce and repair themselves from injury and metabolize and all the functions we see a living system engage, which define what it is to be alive. It was thought very difficult to understand any of that in mechanistic terms, and then, lo and behold, we managed to do that. The difference for me is, and you know, I'm happy to have you prop up this analogy more than I have, but the difference for me is that everything you want to say about life, with the exception of conscious life, we have to leave consciousness off the table here, everything else you want to say about life can be defined in terms of extrinsic functional relationships among material parts. So, you know, reproduction and growth and healing and metabolism and homeostasis, all of this is physics and need not be described in any other way. And even something like perception, you know, the transduction of energy, you know, let's say, you know, vision, light energy into electrical and chemical energy in the brain and, and the mapping of a visual space onto a visual cortex, all of that makes sense in mechanistic physical terms until you add this piece of oh but for some of these processes there's something that it's like to be that process for me that it just strikes me as a false analogy and with or without zombies the hard problem still stays hard i think it's an open question whether the analogy will turn out to be false or not it's it's difficult for us now to put ourselves back in the the mindset of somebody 80 years ago 100 years ago when vitalism was was quite prominent and whether the sense of mystery sa- uh, surrounding something that was alive uh, seemed to be as inexplicable as consciousness seems to us today so it's it's easy to say with hindsight i think that that life is something different but you know we've we've encountered or, or rather scientists and philosophers over centuries have encountered things that have seemed to be inexplicable that have turned out to be ex- explicable so I don't think we should rule out a a priori that uh, there's going to be something really different this time about consciousness. There's, I think, a more a heuristic aspect to this is that if we if we run with the analogy of life, what that what that leads us to do is to isolate the different phenomenal properties that co-constitute what it is for us to be conscious. You know, we can think about, and we'll come to this, I'm sure we think about conscious selfhood as distinct from conscious perception of the outside world. We can think about conscious experiences of uh, volition and of agency that are also very sort of central to our 
certainly our experience of self. These, gives our, these give us phenomenological explanatory targets then, that we can then try to account for in, with particular kinds of mechanisms. It may turn out at the end of doing this that there's some, some residue. There is still something that is fundamentally puzzling which is this hard problem residue. Why is, st- why is there any, uh, why are there any lights on for any of these kinds of things? Isn't it all just perception? But maybe it won't turn out like that. And I think to give us the best chance of it not turning out like that, there's a positive and a negative aspect. The positive aspect is that we need to retain a focus on phenomenology. And this is Another reason why I think the, the hard-easy problem distinction can be a little bit unhelpful, because in addressing the easy problem, we are basically instructed to not worry about phenomenology. All we should worry about is function and behavior. And then the hard problem kind of gathers within its remit everything to do with phenomenology in, in, this, in this central mystery of why is there some experience rather than no experience. The alternative approach, and this is something I've kind of caricatured as the real problem, but you know, David Chalmers himself has called it the mapping problem, and, and Varela, Francisco Varela, uh, talks about a similar set of ideas with his neurophenomenology, is to not try to solve the hard problem to court, not try to explain how it is possible that consciousness comes to be part of the universe, but rather to individuate different kinds of phenomenological properties and draw some explanatory mapping between neural, biological, physical mechanisms and these phenomenological properties. Now, once we've done that and we can begin to explain not why is there experience at all, but why are certain experiences the way they are and not other ways, and we can predict when certain experiences will have particular phenomenal characters and so on, then we'll have done a lot more and than we can currently do. And we may have to make use of novel kinds of conceptual frameworks, maybe frameworks like information processing will run their course and will require other more sophisticated kinds of descriptions of dynamics and probability in order to build these explanatory bridges. So I think we can get a lot closer. And the negative aspect is, why should we ask more of a theory of consciousness than we should ask of other kinds of scientific theories? And I know people have talked about this on your, your podcast before as well, but we do seem to want more of an explanation of consciousness than we would do of an explanation in, in biology or physics, that it somehow should feel intuitively right to us. And I wonder why this is such a, a big deal when it comes to, to consciousness, uh, you know, because we're trying to explain something fundamental about ourselves doesn't necessarily mean that we should apply different kinds of standards to an explanation that we would apply in other fields of science. It's, it just may not be that we get this feeling that something is intuitively correct when it is in fact, in fact uh, a very good scientific account of the origin of phenomenal properties. Certainly, I mean, certainly scientific explanations are not instantiations. There's no sense in which a good theory of consciousness should be expected to suddenly realize the phenomenal properties that it's explaining. But also, I think we, yeah, we do, I worry that we ask too much of theories of consciousness this way. Yeah, well, we'll move forward into the details, and I, I'll just flag moments where I feel like the hard problem should be causing problems for us. I do think it's not a matter of asking too much of a theory of consciousness here. I think it's, 
there are very few areas in science where the accepted explanation is totally a brute fact, which just has to be accepted because it is the only explanation that works, but it's not something that actually illuminates the transition from, you know, atoms to some higher level phenomenon, say. Again, for everything we could say about life, even the very strange details of molecular biology, just how information in the genome gets out and creates the rest of a human body, it still runs through when you look at the details. It's surprising. It's at parts difficult to visualize, but the more we visualize it, the more we describe it, the closer we get to something that is highly intuitive, even something like, you know, the flow of water. The fact that water molecules in its liquid state are loosely bound and move past one another, well, that seems exactly like what should be happening at the micro level, so as to explain the macro level property of the wetness of water and the fact that it has characteristics, higher level characteristics that you can't attribute to atoms, but you can attribute to collections of atoms like turbulence, say. Whereas with, you know, if consciousness just happens to require some minimum number of information processing units knit together in a certain configuration, firing at a certain hertz, and you change any of those parameters and the lights go out, that for me still seems like a mere brute fact that doesn't explain consciousness. It's just a correlation that we decide is the crucial one. And I've never heard a, a description of consciousness that unpacks it any more than that. And you can react to that, but then I think we should just get into the details and see how it all sounds. Sure. I'll just, I'll just react very briefly, which is, which is that I think I'd also be terribly disappointed if the, you, know, you look at the, the answer in a book of nature and it turned out to be, yes, you need 612,000 neurons wired up in a small world network and, and you know, that's, that's it. You know, the, the hope is that does seem, of course, ridiculous and arbitrary and, and unsatisfying. I mean, the hope is that as we progress beyond, if you like, just brute correlates of conscious states towards accounts that provide more satisfying bridges between mechanism and phenomenology, that explain, for instance, why a visual experience has the phenomenal character that it has and not some other uh, kind of phenomenal character like an emotion, that it won't seem so arbitrary. Okay, so now we've gone pretty deep into the details and seen some paths to consider consciousness. And we've spent a good amount of time wrestling with just how counterintuitive the only moves to make in this space seem to be. But this entire counterintuitive picture gets even stranger still. It turns out that we seem to be able to slice consciousness with a knife. In just about every conversation or book on consciousness, you'll run into Roger Sperry's split brain experiments. This compilation is no different. Sperry conducted experiments in the 1950s and 60s in which he severed the corpus colostrum, which is the large bundle of neurons that connects the two hemispheres of the brain. This operation was originally performed to alleviate the symptoms of severe epilepsy. But the results of these studies are truly bizarre. What appears to happen is the creation of two separate consciousnesses within the same person. We know that the brain's hemispheres have a sort of executive function over the opposite sides of our body. We also know that one hemisphere seems to have control over our speech function. 
Sperry and his team performed some rather basic experiments with split-brain patients, where they would show an image or word to one eye and ask the patient what they saw. If the word was pushed towards the vocal hemisphere of the brain, the patient had no problem verbally reporting what they were just shown. But if it was piped through the other side of their perception and into the nonverbal hemisphere of the brain, the patient could not verbally report anything. And from the researcher's point of view, the person seemed to be completely unaware of the contents of the input. But the very weird thing is that when the patients were asked to draw what they saw and a pencil was placed into the hand from that mute side of their body, they could draw the word or object they just reported not being aware of at all. The strangeness went even deeper than that. The two sides of these patients would sometimes desire different things and seem to be locked in a right-left wrestling match over what dress to wear, or profession to follow, or even make the same moral judgment about a shared situation. Sam and his next guest, Ian McGilchrist, will walk you through just how bizarre this all gets. This comes from episode 234, an episode entitled, The Divided Mind. Let's just describe the original right. you know, Sperry experiments, you know, born of the neurosurgeries done by Joe Bogan, and discuss how it is we were able to interrogate the hemispheres separately and know that there, there really are, in the case of a divided brain, two different points of view on the world, and, and really two different subjects, two different people mm. in a single mm. human head. Yes. First of all, people were amazed by a couple of things that they just observed without doing any experiments. People were, first of all, thinking, what would it be like for somebody to have the two halves of their brain completely separate? When I say completely separate, there are a couple of minor fish, minor commissures, um, yeah. commissures that, that, connect, that connect the hemispheres. But to all intents and purposes, the very much the most important had been severed. And the answer to that was that they were remarkably normal. <laughs> As if these two hemispheres could carry on like that without doing a lot of talking to one another. But they did also notice, at least in the early days after the operation, going on for the first months, that sometimes people would show completely conflicting behavior. So a woman would go to the wardrobe to take out a dress with her right hand, and her left hand would take it and put it back and take out a different one. Or somebody would get out money to pay from the wallet, and the other hand would take it away and put it back in his pocket. So this is the kind of thing that you, you saw. I believe there was a case of a, a man trying to embrace his wife with one hand and strangle her with the other. Yes. Well, at least push her away with the other. Right. <laughs> I think the story's got more... It got, it got, it got better as it got told. Yeah. But, but it got better. Yeah. <laughs> but no, that's right. But, you know, very good, very uh, interesting experiments were devised, very clever, ingenious experiments were devised whereby, for example, you could give information to just one ear, or you could give conflicting information to the two ears at the same time. And normally, of course, information is shared, but in this case, it wouldn't be shared. And so you could actually have a different input to each hemisphere. And you can also do this visually using a technique called tachistoscopy, in which a different image is put up in the right visual field, which goes to the left hemisphere, from the one that's put up in the left visual field, which goes to the right hemisphere. And you can then 
ask questions of the person about what they've seen or what they've done. One of the most interesting findings was that when the left hemisphere knew really nothing at all, because the information had all gone to the right hemisphere, it would pretend that it knew all about what was going on. So mm. when it was asked, why did you respond in a certain way, about which it knew diddly squat, because that had been the information the right hemisphere had had, and that was why we had responded in that way, it would make something up that was plausible. And yeah. it is, <laughs> one way of looking at it is that the left hemisphere is extraordinarily good at making things up. And it's a bullshitter, in fact. Mm. And this is why Mike Zaniger calls it the interpreter, because it can make sense of whatever it sees happening. And it actually seems to believe its own propaganda. There's something impossible or, or, or at least very difficult to assimilate about this finding into one's sense of one's own being in the world. I, I want to try to make what we're talking about here as subjectively real to people as we can make it. But before, and we'll go further into just the differences between the hemispheres and mm, perhaps mm. what we can start with, with just this, this basic question which you've raised is, you know, why is the brain divided in the first place? And why would it not be functionally symmetrical? But here's what strikes me as most strange about the phenomenon, which you really can just extrapolate from the split brain finding. So the split brain finding is that if you, if you divide the brain surgically by cutting the, the commissures, or at least the corpus callosum, but you know the, the anterior commissure and the, the, there are a few others that, that need not be cut but could be cut, and you have this very stark finding where you have just undeniably two points of view, you know, whatever their differences, as we will yet describe, mm. there are two points of view at that point in the, the human mind is, is dual and the left hand quite literally doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And, uh, you know, reminding people again about the contralateral organization of the nervous system, the, the, as you said, the right hemisphere in a divided brain sees only the left side of the world, and the left hemisphere sees the right side of the world. It's not divided left and right eye. It's the left hemifield within both eyes and, and the right hemifield within both eyes. So you can present an image to the right hemisphere, which the left hemisphere does not see, but because language is so disproportionately subserved by the left hemisphere, certainly you know, 95% of people, when you're talking to the subject and you say, well, so what did you see? The answer you're getting, you know, though the right hemisphere hears you, the answer you're getting is coming from the left hemisphere that has control of speech. And so you're talking to a person who says, well, I, I didn't see anything. And then in an experiment like this, you could say, well, well just, you know, can you take your, your left hand and reach for the object that you, you may or may not have seen? And then at that point, the right hemisphere, which is in full control of the left hand or near full control of the left hand, can uh, reach and pick up an object, which is, is in fact the object that was presented to it you know, visually. And then when asked, well, why did you pick up this key or egg or whatever the object was? As you point out, the left hemisphere at that point confabulates and tells a story. It seems to always have a story as to why, in this case, the left hand over which it has no control did what it did. And it shows that it has basically no you know, re reality testing 
mechanism le- left to it, left to its own devices, it will just publicize <laughs> some account yes. of the world. And uh, you know, it's apparently the most credulous person on earth. The amazing thing about this is, if you extrapolate from this finding that you know a divided brain gives you two people, right, two fairly different people, if you extrapolate from that and realize that, you know, as you said, the, an intact corpus callosum only terminates on a mere 2% of cortical neurons, right? I mean, it's not that every neuron is connected with every other like neuron across the hemispheres, right? So we're, we're, we have to be imperfectly connected, even in the healthiest, most intact brain, which is to say there isn't perfect information sharing across the hemispheres. And so it opens the question, to what degree are we dual even now? To what degree is there, could there be islands of consciousness in an intact brain or shifting, overlapping, non-shared spaces of consciousness, whereas it is something that it's like to be part of the right hemisphere, and there's something that it's like to be part of the left hemisphere, and in any given moment, these points of view may not be unified. They may be, I'm agnostic as to whether or not this is a totally fluid situation, and they can come to be unified and, and separate again, but it gives a kind of Freudian spooky picture of the mind, that the unconscious, from the point of view of the conscious you in this moment, may in fact be conscious, you know, and and looking over your shoulder, in a sense. And I think there's something about that picture that is so weird that people just don't want to think about it. I think it, yes, you pointed to something, definitely, that I don't think can be dismissed. But I think I'd like to sort of moderate that picture a little. Sure. And the first is that we all grow up with information coming to us from both halves of the world. And it is communicated through the body and into the brain using both endocrine transmitters as well as the neurological system that we are describing. Right. And the the normal person is receiving a picture all around of the world, and this information is being taken as a whole. So on the whole, we don't find ourselves noticing this. In fact, if we noticed it, it would be very damaging for us because we would find ourselves constantly torn, like the person who's trying to pay and putting the money back in in the pocket. And it's also worth saying that after usually about the first five or six months, most split-brain subjects started to lose this intermanual conflict, as it's called. So it's something that the person sort of accommodated to. But it's also not just true of, I mean, on the other hand, it's also not just split-brain patients that must be thinking very differently and seeing the world very differently, because you can produce this effect experimentally in normal subjects using transcranial magnetic stimulation, Mm. which is a technique whereby you can painlessly stimulate or suppress, uh, depending on the frequency of the pulses, areas of the brain. When you do that, something full-fledged and ready to go is released. So it's not like 
it, it was there. You know, when you when you knock out the left hemisphere, you knock out the right hemisphere, you find instantaneously decisions being made which are characteristic of what we know to be the way of the right or the left hemisphere. And this can actually be advantageous in certain circumstances, so that problem-solving of a certain kind, um, Alan Snyder in Sydney has experimented on this, uh, can be facilitated by suppressing the left frontal cortex and enhancing the right frontal cortex so that complex problems, that, including mathematical problems, can be more easily solved. In any case, all I'm really saying there is that, yes, there is something spooky, and it's not just in split-brain patients. I acknowledge that because, as I say, it's there and ready to go. And when mm. people have a stroke and they suddenly start experiencing the world differently, you know, how did that happen just like that unless it was there and ready to go in the intact individual? So we know that is the case. But I suppose I'm less troubled by the idea that there might be two people here. It looks like that, but then it would only be like that if, as it were, we were sure that whatever it is that is my left hemisphere's consciousness and my right hemisphere's consciousness were generated straight out of those hemispheres. Now, I suspect that this may be a point on which we we might differ, but I'm not convinced that the brain is merely a producer or secretor of consciousness. Mm. So it becomes possible to think of consciousness that is a flow and that is transmitted, transduced by the brain. So you can see the brain as something that is receiving a stream of information to both hemispheres simultaneously and together, and and that that is producing the whole personal experience. But that what happens when you artificially divide the brain is that it's rather like an island in a stream where the stream has to go either side of the island and then reconvene again. And the stories I've been telling about the coming together and the coming separately of the two hemispheres might be better thought of in terms of such a metaphor. That's all really I'm suggesting. Mm. I think it's too extreme to say that there are two persons that are, you know, there's Sam Harris left and Sam Harris right. I don't think that's a, uh, I think that's too simple. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't suggesting that. I, I guess what I was suggesting, though, is that in any picture other than perfect information sharing, then you have to ask yourself, mm. what is left out and what are the consequences of its being left mm. out for subjectivity in any given moment? And however fluid you want to make it, anything less than perfect mm. access across the commissures mm. gives you this Venn diagram where, of, of conscious experience wherein the two circles don't completely overlap and become one. So then you have to ask yourself, well, what is the penumbra like where the left doesn't share what the right is in fact experiencing and vice versa? And yes. again, this could be completely fluid so that you, know, the, you could have more global states of the hemispheres where there is a kind of synchrony and synchrony may in fact be what is mediating the sharing of, of you know, a conscious percept or thought in any given moment. But again, the, the spooky part for me is not, not so much that much of what the brain is doing is unconscious you know, or outside the experience of the conscious subject in any moment. 
It's the idea that some of what's outside your experience as a conscious subject in this moment may itself be conscious, right? That's the thing that just oh yes makes the hair stand up on the back of one's neck. Well, may I? Yeah, um, just there's so much that you're, you're you're commenting on there that's so important. I wanted to comment on the question about consciousness because, of course, consciousness means many different things, and. In one sense, we think that consciousness is what is in my mind that I'm aware of right now and I'm focusing on. But that is variously estimated to be between half a percent and five percent of what's going on in one's brain. In fact, I read a paper in which the, the authors said that 99.44% of brain activity was not within the field of consciousness, mm. which is alarmingly precise, but anyway, it makes the point. But the way I would see that is that there is also material that can quite quickly become conscious. It's just that it's not conscious now right. for reasons, reasons of expediency. If we are to function, we simply can't be conscious of many things of which we have consciousness at a different level. And that can be brought into effect like that if it's necessary. So the way I see it is that one distinction between the left and the right hemisphere, which we must come on to at some point, is that the left hemisphere has very narrow beam attention that is highly clarified and precise. But it's only to like three, three degrees of the 360 degree attentional arc. Whereas the right hemisphere sees a very broad picture. And that is quite different. It's on the lookout. It's vigilant all the time. So if you think of the field of consciousness as being a stage on which life is going on, the bit that is within the spotlight is the bit the left hemisphere sees. And that's the bit we say, oh, I'm conscious of that. But when the spotlight moves, five minutes later, you're no longer conscious of what you were conscious of even a few seconds ago. But it's still within your consciousness. It's still possible for you to summon it, and it's still there. It's like the part of the stage that's not illuminated. It hasn't gone away. It's just the bit we're not any longer attending to in this very particular, highly self-conscious consciousness. In that section, you heard some suggestions that the split-brain findings can lend some support to the earlier referenced analogy of the brain as a sort of consciousness radio receiver. We're now going to explore another possible conception of consciousness that we previously mentioned. So, as promised earlier, we're going to head back to our zombie assembly station and deal with one of the possibilities that feels difficult to refute, but seems to lead to some surprising theories when you follow the logic all the way through. Recall our assumption that building a philosophical zombie was not actually possible, meaning that consciousness was the inevitable result of putting all the pieces together. And this result seemed to carry with it the assumption that the consciousness stuff must have existed in the raw material in some form before we started our construction process. But that idea also seemed to clash strongly with our intuition that the unassembled atoms and electrons were not conscious. But mustn't they have been? Wouldn't they have had to be? How do we make sense of that? The notion that consciousness permeates every material is generally called panpsychism. 
There are many flavors of this idea which can feel dangerously close to the realms of unsubstantiated pseudoscience and unscientific New Age frameworks. But the risk of wandering close to these borders is part of the mental obstacle course of maneuvering through the topic of consciousness. Our next guest will be quick to point out that taking panpsychism seriously does not suggest that the electron, stone, boulder, or tree is actually having any kind of conscious experience even remotely like what you or I experience. But the entire mystery doesn't seem to be swept away so easily. Thus far, we've been referring to David Chalmers' framing of the hard problem. But to prepare for our final two clips, it'll be helpful to consider a classic way to put the same quandary and refer to what was historically called the mind-body problem. The mind-body framing points out the apparent drastic difference between body stuff and mind stuff. As the hard problem keeps insisting, the gulf between the two can feel infinitely wide. How does mind arise from the body? To some, it appears that the activity of the body won't ever satisfyingly explain the emergence of the mind. But as we know, we do have both mind and body, world and experience, objects and subjects. So we crave an explanation to make sense of this. If you are unable to soften the hard problem, you're left in a bit of a philosophical traffic jam. To some thinkers, it feels like we have to make a choice to make any progress on the mind-body problem. We have to take one of the two sides of the problem to be fundamental, meaning that it just is a brute fact, and our probing questions of why can't explain its appearance at any deeper level. If we take one side of the problem as fundamental, then it must be where we look and investigate so that it can explain the existence of the other. If we take the body side of the mind-body problem to be fundamental, meaning that the physical world, or nature, is fundamental and it just exists, then our job is to probe it and understand its structure and behavior to discover patterns and regularities within it that give rise to all emergent phenomena, including the phenomena of the mind. But if consciousness still feels different for you and the hard problem is eternally compelling, and there's just no way the physical can explain subjective existence, there is another move to be made here. What if we push mind down to the fundamental level of body? What if mind is at the same level as other laws of physics that we may discover to be fundamental, like the existence of whatever the true nature of gravity turns out to be? Or put another way, mental property is just a fundamental and measurable feature of all matter, such as qualities like the mass of an object. This is an effort to address the mind-body problem by pushing them both down to the fundamental level and weaving them together. This next guest is Annika Harris, who is an author and science writing consultant. And she also happens to be Sam's wife, which explains the congenial tone in this clip. Annika had just published a book called Conscious, A Brief Guide to the Fundamental Mystery of the Mind which describes her reluctant warming up to the ideas of panpsychism, amongst many other topics in consciousness. Here, she talks about her careful process of allowing her mind to entertain the conception of panpsychism as a potential effort to deal with the stubbornness of the hard problem. This is from episode 159, an episode entitled, Conscious. Okay, so why is it not straightforward to judge the consciousness of a system or a thing 
from the outside? What is the evidence that consciousness exists? Yeah, so this is, so listeners know, I I begin my discussion and my, I, I basically, the book takes the reader through my own thought processes over the last 15 years or so, and what I've arrived at and why I've become open to some of the stranger theories that are out there that postulate that consciousness could be a more fundamental feature of the universe. And so I begin this investigation of breaking through our intuitions and getting as close in my in my own thoughts as I've been able to at what are our intuitions and could they be wrong? And so I think our the most primary intuitions we have about consciousness live in these two questions that I like to keep asking myself. And the first one is the one you just you know the one you just named. Is there any behavior on the outside or anything we can witness on the outside of a system that can tell us conclusively that consciousness is present in that system? And my first answer is, is always yes, and that, that's something that I then question throughout the book. But I think it's interesting because we, we feel very strongly that the answer is yes. If I see that my daughter has fallen down and is crying and you ask me, is, is all this behavior you're seeing right now evidence that she's conscious? I would say, absolutely. This, this is... Just, just to be clear, see. this is not the normal way I parent. With you, but <laughs> I'm capable of a lot, but not quite that. <laughs> so, you know, or, or anything. In the, in the book, I use the example of someone witnessing a car accident, I think, and, you know, being appropriately concerned and calling 911 all, all there t- there's just endless amount of behaviors that we witness that we think yes that that is absolute evidence that that person is conscious I mean, we can do it with animals as well and i think it's interesting to question that to question whether there is something that by definition gives us evidence that there is is consciousness there well, so as, so obviously there are counterexamples. We all meet people in dreams. Presumably they're not conscious or don't even exist, and they seem to be conscious. We will almost certainly build robots at a certain point which pass the Turing test. Mm-hmm. And if we don't understand the material basis of consciousness at the time we produce those robots, we won't know whether or not they're conscious, and yet they, they may seem to be conscious. Right. And then conversely... There are people who we know, due to neurological injury, are still conscious, but they can give no sign of that. And, right. and one example I think you talk about in the book is locked-in syndrome. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that I, I actually start there with, with all of the cases we can give where we don't see that behavior that we would normally give. And there is a, a full, very complex, you know, as complex as, as our own experiences right now that are present in people who are completely paralyzed. And we couldn't ever see that evidence from the outside. I think that's an interesting starting place for whether we can ever pinpoint certain behaviors that that we can say conclusively are evidence of consciousness. And then the second question is, essentially, is consciousness doing anything? Is it serving a function? And our reflexive answer with that, again, is yes, and my, my intuition goes that way too. But I think the, these are the kind of the simplest, deepest intuitions we have, and I wanted to start there in terms of challenging our intuitions and, and, and trying to break through some of them. So an example of, of the second question, even though it's very similar to the first, but it's getting at it from a slightly different angle, 
would be, you know, just deciding to to write a book or even the, the whole writing process, it feels very strongly that consciousness is driving all of that. It feels like every time I, I make a decision or plan almost anything, consciousness is the thing that's driving it. It's, it is it clearly has a role in my behavior and it seems to have a role at the very beginning. And the science actually, you know, as you know and have talked about and written about is is the opposite. And so that's that's an intuition that we can start to chip away at pretty quickly. And I think you you start to go down very interesting paths of contemplation when when you begin with these two questions that challenge our intuitions. Yeah, so it's not clear what consciousness is doing and this is the concern here in philosophy has been that consciousness is a so-called epiphenomenon mm-hmm. which is to say it's it's something that is stands outside the stream of phenomenon that are causal and if consciousness is doing anything it has to be doing it at the level of in our case the brain's causal pattern you know the neurophysiology so mm-hmm. it's the most w- well-subscribed view at this point is that consciousness, whatever it is at the level of experience, it is you know the fact that the lights are on, the fact that it's like something to be you in this moment, that's how it seems from the first-person side. But there's some third-person level of description, which is its cash value at the level of causality. So if there's mm-hmm. certain, if, mm-hmm. if, if some things can only be done consciously, that's because whatever consciousness is at the level of neurophysiology, in our case, that has to be part of the the causal stream, right? Yeah. But it's a little more mysterious than that in that, and you just alluded to this, which is that anything we're conscious of, I mean, take your writing process, the decision to write, the decision to sit down precisely at that moment to write, the decision about where to start relative to what you had written previously, the word choice for the, to start the next sentence, anything you can point to in that process, no matter how deliberative it seems, is preceded by events in your brain of which you're not conscious, of which, right, which, exactly. which there's no conscious correlate. And the question is, why does any of that, that seemingly could all happen on its own, yeah. right? And, and so what is consciousness adding to right. that process? Well, and the zombie thought experiment has always been instrumental in this, but I actually think at this point, because AI is so in our minds because of pop culture and, and films, I think it's easy for us to imagine AI doing a lot of the things that we are capable of without consciousness. Like writing a book. Like writing a book. But even something like vision, it seems very natural to us that we have an experience of seeing things and we we understand that there are processes in the brain and light is bouncing off the objects in the room and hitting our retina and our brain and we're processing this. But we can easily see that a computer a camera or very advanced AI could be doing all of the processing, the visual processing that we're doing without having an experience like the one we're having. It's a very specific feeling content of consciousness to be seeing the color blue. And that's not necessarily, or it doesn't seem to us to be necessary for the processing to take place. So the, the idea that consciousness might not be doing anything is problematic or perceived to be problematic from an evolutionary point of view because people wonder, well, then why would it have evolved? Surely it must be doing something because it it must be expensive metabolically on some level, although perhaps not all that expensive. And 
why would this thing have emerged? Now, this, yeah. again, not, not everything that's emerged has a, an evolutionary rationale. There are things that just have come along for free that aren't really selected for. But, but our intuitions are so aligned with that theory also. It really feels like, you know, the love and my desire to protect my child is the thing that will give me that extra power, that extra strength, that extra will. The experiential component do, of that. To, yeah. To do, yeah. The fact that it's like something to want to protect your child rather than just blindly coded into an unconscious Yeah, no, it seems to us that the feelings of love and fear, probably primarily, but, but of course all of the other emotions and desires and intentions, it, it seems that our experience of them is the thing that gives them their power. Except we know, the case of fear is a great example, because we yeah. know that the startle response has already hit the amygdala before you're aware you've been startled. Yeah, no, you know, so, so I, I think we're probably wrong about this, and and again, the, the zombie thought experiment can get you there. But just imagining an AI that's been programmed to, above all else, protect this other robot. You can call it its child, whatever it is. You, it doesn't seem to us that it would require that it have an experience in order to follow that programming. So, so the argument about evolution is one that sends many people, including myself, down the path of is it possible that consciousness is a fundamental feature of all matter and it is there in some form? Of course, if, if we're talking very minimal forms, if we're talking the level of atoms or very minimal information processing, it's important to not confuse consciousness with complex thought. There, there's no, there's, no one is postulating that if it's a more fundamental feature, it is anything like a human mind and brain, but... Okay, so let me just understand the move you just made. So okay. the the idea that consciousness may not be doing anything seems problematic if you think that consciousness had to have emerged in the process of evolution, because by default, we expect those things to have been costly in some way yeah. and to have been selected for, and therefore, by definition, they were leading to differential success in breeding and survival. So if consciousness isn't doing any of that, that seems mysterious, unless you posit that it is a far more fundamental feature of physical reality yes, than that. Right. And the name for that view, the, ge the general family of views in philosophy is panpsychism. Right. Right. So I warned you to tread lightly on panpsychism because it seems... It, well, first it, of all, it's a terrible name. I actually, I, I kind of opened the question to the world to come up with a better name. It just, it, it sounds something like something very unscientific or pseudoscientific. Hmm. And just on the face of it, it sounds like a crazy idea, which it really, I feel like I'm, I'm a good proponent of it. And I actually shouldn't say I'm a, I'm a full proponent of it because... In my book, I, I say, and I'm, I'm still in the same place, that I'm really just open to it. I think it's, it's, a, it's a, a category of theories that are very interesting and worth exploring. I think it's, it's just as likely that even though it is as mysterious as it is, it's possible that, that it requires, that consciousness requires a brain and that consciousness does not emerge until we have brain or a nervous system present. But I, I, I think this other this other way of looking at consciousness is very interesting, and I feel like I'm a good person to fight for it or to fight mm -hmm. for, for more people being open to it because I completely dismissed it when I first encountered it, and 
Like most people, they feel that it just the idea sounds completely crazy. So I cite in my book this great title of an article by Philip Goff, which is Panpsychism is Crazy, but it's also most probably true. And that really gets at for me the point at which I started to take panpsychism more seriously. Our last clip is another effort to solve the mind-body problem that goes even further. Instead of pushing mind down to the same fundamental level of the body, this effort actually finds a deeper level of the fundamental and casts body and all that we experience as nature and reality as entirely emergent from it. If this sounds strange, the title of this guest's book will confirm just how strange. The guest is Don Hoffman, and his book is entitled The Case Against Reality. Hoffman agrees entirely with Sam that consciousness is the only thing which can't be an illusion. Starting from this point of certainty, he surmises that our medium of perception is something like an interface which evolved purely to navigate a world. And surprisingly, that evolution does not point in the direction of helping us see the world for what it is. But in fact, it evolves in the other direction, to hide reality from us. Hoffman often deploys the analogy of a computer desktop with icons on it to explain this point. You can picture an icon shaped like a blue rectangle, which represents a file, like an email. If you drag this icon to the icon that is shaped like a trash can and release it there, you know that this action will delete the file. But of course, the email is not actually a blue rectangle-shaped thing, and there is no actual trash can anywhere in the computer. The reality at the level of the computer is wildly complex and different. The reality of the email at that level is a maze of electricity flows with embedded information moving through circuits and buzzing around logic gates and resistors. But if you had to actually compose an email by manipulating and navigating that reality, you'd be hopelessly lost and the email would never be sent. So the interface, of course, presents something neat and simple for you to interact with and understand. In essence, it hides the deeper and in some sense truer reality of things from you. Your manipulation of the interface corresponds and correlates with the electrons buzzing about, but you remain unaware and unconcerned with them. Hoffman applies this analogy to our interaction through what we perceive as reality. Imagine that we're all wearing a sort of virtual reality headset, which filters what's really out there through this evolved interface. And just like the desktop, the headset presents icons, graphics, and sensory data so that we can more easily navigate what's behind it. And just like the desktop interface has an engineered directive to help you write your email, this reality interface is driven by a fitness function geared, at least in part, towards survival. So if you see a train locomotive charging towards you, that is an icon which, at the very least, represents something quite dangerous and that you should take seriously and try to avoid. But what does that icon actually refer to at a deeper, unaccessed level of reality? We have no idea, and neither does Hoffman. But what he's sure about is that it's nothing like a train, just like the email is nothing like a blue rectangle. So where does consciousness fit in this strange picture? If we bring back our initial Thomas Nagel questions and consider what Hoffman would call an icon of a bat, or a stone, an atom, or even another person appearing before us, the true nature of reality beyond the interface is something like a swarm of conscious agents drifting around. But for whatever reason, it is not useful, necessary, or fit in evolutionary terms 
for us to see what our interface is presenting to us as the stone, as conscious. Whereas there must be some fitness for us to see some consciousness associated with the icon of the bat, and apparently plenty of it when we're presented with the icon of another human. So when Mary sees the red rose, what is that qualia for Hoffman? It's something deeply real and somehow beautiful, but the icon gives us little knowledge beyond that to what the true reality of the thing is. Hoffman's picture of things can get rather challenging, but it's worth it to listen into a bit of the conversation to see just how far it can go when you start to peel back the layers of the mysteries of consciousness. Sam tapped Annika to help him explore Hoffman's theory in episode 178, The Reality Illusion. Okay, so on to consciousness and free will and other dangerous topics. Yes. What, in your view, is the connection between consciousness and the base layer of reality? Right. So this is now a leap. The work that I've done on evolution of natural selection not showing us the truth just says that whatever we're seeing is an interface to whatever objective reality might be. But it doesn't, by itself, give any clue to what that other objective reality might be. Mm-hmm. So the, the stuff I'm going to talk about now does not follow from my theorem with, with Chaitan or the, the simulations. It doesn't follow at all. Mm-hmm. This is a leap. Mm-hmm. And, and the leap I'm taking is motivated by the desire to try to understand a solution to the hard problem mm-hmm. of consciousness. So you, like many of us, see the hard problem as genuinely hard, and now we're talking about how you are bringing consciousness into your picture of, of things. And maybe I'll just say a little bit about that hard problem and my thoughts on it yeah. more generally. And that is that some people will say, well, just get over it. You know, it's a hard problem. It's not really a hard problem. Just, you just need to you know, come to terms with it. And, and my attitude is this. As a scientist, I want a mathematically precise theory. If you claim that certain patterns of neural activity are my experiences of the taste of vanilla, then I want a, sci- a mathematically precise theory that says precisely which class of neural activity is the taste of vanilla and principled reasons why it could not be the taste of chocolate. Now, maybe it's a hard problem or not, but we have not solved that problem. Hmm. And as a scientist, I'm not happy with hand waves that say somehow neural activity is my taste of chocolate. That's not a scientific theory. It's not even in, it's not in a game playing theory. It's, it's not in the game at all. Right. Mm-hmm. So I want, so whether you want to say it's hard or not, there isn't anything on the table that I, as a scientist, find respectable. Mm-hmm. Same thing is true for, you know, orchestrated collapse of microtubule states in, 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 in neurons. Right. Nice general idea. What is the precise orchestrated collapse of microtubules that is the taste of chocolate? Yes, and why must Hammeroff and Penrose. Yeah, the Hammeroff and Penrose. Again, whether the problem is hard or not, the fact is there is no mathematically precise statement for even one conscious experience in any of the ideas that are being proposed. Well, and I would argue that if you let, if you just you know, take that advice and let go of the hard problem, the truth is you're just, you're starting with an assumption either way. So, so mm-hmm. the letting go of the hard problem just means, okay, I will assume that something that matter does causes consciousness to arise. To me, the, that's not any more kosher than assuming that consciousness is everywhere to begin with. There's no really good reason for taking one assumption over the other. So either way, they're, they're asking you to just make an assumption about 
well, how consciousness relates to matter. Absolutely. And if my colleagues, I mean, I mean, of course, these are all my good friends and so forth. So, mm-hmm. But if, if yeah. my colleagues actually had a mathematic precise theory that says, these are the patterns of neural activity that must be the taste of chocolate, and these are the principal reasons, great. Mm-hmm. I mean, now we're doing science and I'd be, I'd be quite happy. And, and if I was convinced that they had a story, I probably wouldn't be going where I'm going with, with consciousness. But it's, it's the utter failure to give me as a scientist something that I, I recognize as a real scientific theory that starts with unconscious ingredients like neural activity or microtubule quantum states and gives me back consciousness as the output. There's nothing that I recognize as science here yet. Yeah. And, and given that, and, and it's also, from my point of view, a matter of search strategy. 99% of my colleagues are assuming that we'll start with unconscious ingredients and boot up consciousness. It's not working so far. Right. And I figure, well, that's a bad search strategy for all of us to be doing that. At least some of us should be looking somewhere else. And so yeah. it's in that spirit yeah. that I'm saying, well, I'm probably, lo- probably wrong, but let's try a theory in which consciousness is fundamental and try to boot up space and time and physical objects as just a user interface description that we're using as a way to you know, interact with you know, a bunch of consciousnesses out there that would otherwise be overwhelming. And we'll see if it works. Hey, you know, mm-hmm. if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But the idea is to be absolutely precise, get something mathematical on the table so we can figure out what's wrong with it. And so in that spirit, I'm trying to solve the hard problem of consciousness in the opposite direction from my colleagues. All of my colleagues, most of my colleagues assume that we will start with unconscious ingredients and boot up consciousness. And more power to them. If they can do it, great. But nothing's on the table yet. And so I'm saying, let's get a mathematically precise theory of consciousness and then try to figure out a theory in which we have a dynamics of consciousness, which is going to be a tall order. And then, so the idea would be there's this vast social network of interacting consciousnesses or a vast field of interacting consciousnesses. And what we call space and time is just a visualization tool that certain consciousnesses use as a way of taming all this complexity that would otherwise be overwhelming. So we have big data of all this social interaction of these consciousnesses. It's overwhelming. We always deal with, with overwhelming you know, social media data by doing visualization tools. And that's what evolution gave us, is a space-time visualization tool. And so the proof of the pudding will be in the science that we can do. Can we give a mathematically precise theory of consciousness from first principles? Can we propose a a dynamics of it? And can we propose how that dynamics gets projected into our space-time interface? And here's the, the bottom line. If that dynamics of consciousness, when it projects into our interface, is to be taken seriously, it better give us back evolution by natural selection, general relativity, string theory, or generalizations of these theories. Mm-hmm. So from my point of view, all of these scientific theories are wonderful tools, but they've only been science of our interface not science of objective reality. So the hope would be we have this theory of of consciousnesses and their interaction, mathematically precise. It projects into our space-time interface, and it must give us back the science that we know and love today. If it can't do that, it's wrong. So this will be an empirically constrained approach. That last conversation ought to give you an idea of just how peculiar things can get when you think deeply about consciousness. There are those who contend that there really is no need to get quite this strange, though, 
and that we ought to keep ourselves grounded and not be too distracted by the temptation to make consciousness overly mysterious. You've heard some of those concerns echoed here. But you've also heard Sam's perspective, which seems to suggest that the hard problem of consciousness is a mystery that just won't go away and is immune to the advances of correlationist science, which only constitute progress on the easy problems. There is a way to analogize this situation to the perpetual tension between how questions and why questions. Perhaps Anil Seth will be right that the counterintuitive friction that we feel surrounding the hard question of why is any physical matter conscious may subside as we get better at describing and responding to questions like how does visual perception work or how does memory relate to language at the level of the brain. Or perhaps none of that knowledge will do much to scratch the itch of our curiosity in this area, and we'll find deeper truths in the strange commitments of panpsychism or fundamental consciousness theories. As you explore this area, you'll be sure to run into some concepts that will first strike you as outlandish that ultimately end up enticing you. Or perhaps you'll go the other direction, where a previously attractive theory starts to sound impossible. The study of consciousness can leave one dizzy with pessimistic confusion, and animated with the tantalizing feeling of being close to a deep truth, sometimes all at once. When that happens, just remember to breathe and be grateful that most times that's happening all on its own, all in the dark. Now, here is suggested reading, listening, and watching on the subject of consciousness. The episodes of Making Sense featured in this compilation were episodes 34, 96, 113, 234, 159, and 178. The full conversations are well worth hearing and traverse wider areas than what we've included here, especially episode 96 with Thomas Metzinger, which begins with his experiences in Germany discovering evidence of the Holocaust. Each guest has published excellent books on consciousness, here are some to seek out. From David Chalmers, The Conscious Mind and the Character of Consciousness. From Thomas Metzinger, The Ego Tunnel and Neural Correlates of Consciousness. From Anil Seth, Being You, A New Science of Consciousness. From Ian McGilchrist, The Divided Brain and the Search for Meaning. From Annika Harris, Conscious. And from Don Hoffman, the case against reality. Sam's book entitled Waking Up is his fullest argument and explanation of how he sees the consciousness issue. Dan Dennett was not included directly in this compilation, but his arguments were famously laid out in a book called Consciousness Explained in 1991. Susan Blackmore published a fantastic and very accessible book called Conversations on Consciousness, which consists of transcribed interviews she conducted with some of the field's best thinkers several of whom we referenced in this compilation. Michael Graziano is a researcher who worked with Roger Sperry on split brain research and has a book entitled Consciousness and the Social Brain, which is worth your time. For viewing recommendations, it's also worth your time to find videos showing the research on split brain patients. You're likely to come across a young Michael Graziano in that search. There is plenty to find from the classic philosophers, from Plato's Allegory of the Cave to Hegel, to William James. And of course, Rene Descartes, who once famously reasoned, I think, therefore I am. Descartes is also responsible for giving us what has been derided by Dan Dennett as a Cartesian theater, 
which is something like a description of being a tiny version of yourself inside your head, watching the world go by on a screen while you react and pull levers. There's a recent modern animated version of this analogy offered by Disney's Inside Out, which is worth watching even if just viewed as an interesting psychological analogy. There are many films which explore various angles of consciousness. The Truman Show is a fun look at solipsism and likely based on Philip K. Dick's 1959 novel titled Time Out of Joint, Inception, Pi, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and Memento are also some of our favorites which look at dreams and memory. But as you surely gathered, the subject of consciousness is so varied that there are cases to be made for many more films to be included in a consciousness cinema playlist. David Chalmers and Anil Seth both delivered excellent TED Talks. Chalmers was entitled, How Do You Explain Consciousness? And Seth's was entitled, Your Brain Hallucinates Your Conscious Reality. There are some serious attempts underway to try to mathematically describe the systems which integrate information in such a way that they give rise to consciousness. Giulio Tononi's work on integrated information theory is worth seeking out for those listeners who are technically inclined. And as you also heard, this compilation overlaps with and is conceptually bound up with considerations of artificial intelligence and free will. Each of those subjects has a compilation that will be a useful companion to this one. This episode was edited, compiled, and written by Jay Shapiro and read by me, Megan Phelps Roper. <laughs>